Welcome to International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, Marxist.com. Join us every single week for Marxist news, theory, and analysis. Hello and welcome to International Marxist Radio and a revolutionary international working women's day to you all. Today, I'm very excited to introduce a new book that's going to be published via Well Read Books. That's wellread-books.com. This will be available as of the release of this episode. It's called Women, Family and the Russian Revolution by John Roberts and Fred Weston. And it looks into the measures that the Bolshevik regime took to emancipate women after the Russian Revolution in 1917. We'll talk about this more in the discussion, but some of the measures that the Bolsheviks introduced, not only were they radical for the time, but frankly, they're still radical by today's standards. They introduced abortion rights, access to health care, education. They completely reformed laws around divorce. These are advances that haven't even been won in some capitalist countries in 2023, let alone in Russia in 1917. Ultimately, and we'll get into this too, the material changes needed to emancipate women beyond formal equality as the letter of the law were difficult to to push forward, difficult to advance and maintain in an isolated semi-feudal country like Russia in 1917. And the rise of the Stalinist bureaucracy out of these conditions would ultimately lead to the strengthening of the family units and major restrictions on women's rights, for example, restricting rights to divorce and abolishing the rights to abortion. And the book ends with a look at the degeneration um, and the effect that has on the situation for women in Russia following capitalist restoration. And it concludes that the only ultimate way to achieve women's final emancipation is through socialist revolution. So that's women, family and the Russian revolution. Um, I'm very happy to welcome one of the authors of this book, Fred Weston, who is an editor for Marxist.com. And we also have Ilva Vinberg, who is a leading member of the Swedish section of the International Marxist tendency on the show to talk to us as well. So Fred and Ilva, thank you so much for joining us. I'll start, I think, with the broad strokes, because I think some people listening might not know what a Marxist position on the question of women's liberation is. So we'll start with you, Ilva. What does Marxism have to say about women's liberation? Because I think some critics of the Marxist position have this sort of crude caricature view of our perspective that we just say women will be liberated after the revolution. For now, we're only interested in class. We reduce everything to economics, to class questions. Um, but is this the case? No, that's absolutely not true. Uh, and I would say in reality, that's Stalinism that did to a certain extent reduce everything to class and economics. But, but also I would say we see that with certain forms of so-called academic Marxism that is obsessed with Marxist capital and overlooks everything else that he and other Marxists have written. Um, but, but real Marxism, Marxism has never done that. And I would say to people who think that, that go and read Marxism. Uh, I'm often a bit frustrated by feminists who make a lot of claims about Marxism, but they've never actually read any Marxist writings themselves, uh, which I think is a bit, bit lazy and, and ignorant, to be honest. Uh, or they have read it, but they have already made their minds up beforehand that Marx and Engels and maybe Lenin, they were old men who didn't care about women. Um, and I find that when they talk about Marxist texts, it's, it's like they make an effort to try and find sexism where there isn't any, or they ignore what they're actually arguing. And I've had many conversations with, with feminists like that. But, but in reality, Marxists have always understood that most, uh, workers are not just oppressed and exploited as workers. But they also suffer under other oppressions. And it was actually Marxists that first talked about the double burden for women workers. 
being oppressed as workers and women. It was not the feminists who, who first talked about that. Uh, and Marxists had a way more advanced program for the emancipation of women. Uh, when the bourgeois women's movement, the suffragettes and so on, really only demanded a few things that would help bourgeois women, ignoring the rest. And you can find uh, writings on women's oppression, on national oppression, uh, uh, right from the start. Uh, you can find it in the Communist Manifesto or in the work that was started by, by Marx and then finished by Engels in what became the origins of the private property family in the state. Uh, or in uh, August Bebel's Woman and Socialism, the many writings by Lenin, Trotsky, Clara Setkin, in the thesis of the Communist International, there's there's a real goldmine of Marxist writings on oppression, covering all aspects of oppression, and obviously by us in the IMT today. And the record shows that we've always been in the forefront in the struggle against oppression. So we've, we've never ignored uh, oppression and reduced every, everything to class. And I think, yeah, Anyone who says this is is either lying consciously or or uneducated about Marxism. Well, I think that one of the lines you'll often hear out of the identity politics camp, and it's a phrase that I despise, is stay in your lane. This view mm. that every oppressed group is only interested in its own oppression and men have nothing to say about the oppression of women, white people have nothing to say about the oppression of black people, and so on. But would you say that male workers have an interest in women's oppression? Absolutely. Uh, and I think we'll touch on that idea later on. But but male workers absolutely have an interest in struggling against oppression. First of all, they have an interest in struggling for all those reforms that actually concretely better the conditions of women workers. And I think we can get into that later on as well. But but they also benefit off of struggling against oppression because all oppressions, not just women's oppression, but racism, homophobia, national oppression and so on. It's it's used by the capitalist to divide the working class. Um, and and we can see this very, very clearly today. Uh, with example, uh, for example, uh, the question of the right to abortion, which is currently under attack in many countries, and it's being used by conservative politicians and so on to try and convince male workers, but, but also women to a certain degree, that this is against their way of life. It's a blow against religion. It weakens the family. And, and often you see that freedom for women and, and bigger equality for women, it's being posed by the capitalists as a threat towards men's power over women within the family. And this is then used to pit one part of the working class towards another uh, to make those workers who support the right to abortion align themselves with liberal politicians who claim to support this right, but they never really in reality do. Uh, and to make them see not just conservative politicians like Trump, Meloni, Bolsonaro as their enemy, but also to see the conservative workers and men as their enemy and vice versa, make these conservative workers see women's rights, but also other things like same sex marriage, rights for trans people, um, to see that as, as a threat towards themselves and as it's posed as a threat towards the family. And when you have workers aligning themselves with one wing of the capitalists and against another sector of the working class, it hinders workers from seeing who their real class enemy is. Um, and, uh, which is all the capitalist po politicians, whether liberal or conservative, um, the whole bourgeoisie. And this hinders a united class struggle against all of them, when in reality, both wings want to uh, attack workers' conditions, uh, and all of them, including liberals, are carrying out racist, sexist policies. So, so we say that the only way that workers can effectively struggle for their own betterment and for the ultimate liberation is through a united common struggle against all oppressions, which are used to divide the working class. So we, we don't reduce everything to class, but at the same time, we live in a class society. So, so class is fundamental. Men as a group do not rule in capitalism. Uh, the capitalists rule. Um, and therefore we need class struggle against oppression. We need working class methods of struggle. 
And we need a clear class independence. We can have no collaboration with any part of the ruling class. Right. Thanks, Silva. Well, we'll come back to some of these points and flesh them out later on. But I mm. want to bring Fred in because obviously you co-authored this book, which provides probably the most important positive example of class struggle achieving advances for women, which was, of course, the October Revolution led by the Bolsheviks. So... What advances were accomplished by the revolution, Fred? I outlined some in the introduction, but perhaps you could go into a bit more detail. Well, you see, the Russian Revolution was a moment in history when Marxists were actually able to actively intervene on the women's question and put into practice the ideas which had been developed over decades previously by Marx, Engels, and other Marxists. Um, and that is actually one of the reasons why the Russian Revolution is so hated by the bourgeois, because at least for a brief period in the 1920s, it gave us a picture of what might be possible uh, under genuine uh, socialism. First of all, we have to remember that it was the women who moved first. That has to be underlined. And the revolution obviously was beneficial to men and women, but the men actually followed the example of the women in February. And it wasn't just in Russia. This is, this has happened many times in history. You see this, the women come out and actually sometimes shame the men right. into saying, why aren't you coming out and pull them out of the factories? In Russia, it was, the, it, it was, it was the Viborg textile workers, right? That's right. That's right. Um, but I mean, the, the, the revolution, and obviously this is not about the revolution itself. I mean, the revolution was successful. The Bolsheviks were able to take power. However, it is important to underline they would not have been able to take power if they had not achieved unity of the working class, i.e. unity of men and women fighting for their common interests as a class. Um, without that unity, uh, the ruling class could have divided the workers, pitting men against women, as Ilva was saying earlier on. So... The program of the Bolsheviks uh, on women was an important element in their program. Um, now, if we go to the actual revolution and, and what it achieved, I mean, first of all, it achieved equality in law, absolute equality. There was no differences now. Under the, under the Tsar, you know, you had family law. It, it stated specifically that women had to obey their husbands, had to serve their husbands, all, all of this. That was all out, and it was complete equality in law. But it wasn't just in law, because the law can be, you know, words, and in practice, you don't have the genuine equality. But for instance, divorce was introduced, which was uh, facilitated, sorry, it was facilitated enormously, where women or the men could um, uh, sue for divorce very easily. Um, another element which was eliminated, for example, was the concept of illegitimacy. All children were equal. Uh, once they were born, it wasn't this question, because you're illegitimate, you're, you're different. And if you could prove who the father was, then the, that father, whether he, he, he fathered the child in marriage or out of marriage, was responsible um, for that child. Um, abortion was introduced. Now, this, uh, we can't highlight this enough. It was the first country in Europe to introduce abortion. Decades before many of the so-called more advanced, more democratic, more progressive, as the people like to present them, abortion was granted, um, which is an enormous step. Um, equal pay for work of equal value was established. On this, by the way, this, 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 this demand of equal pay for work of equal value. I actually have an, an experience. I remember my father in the seventies was on strike for seven weeks. One of the four demands that the workers were going on a strike for was precisely equal pay for work of equal value. What did that mean? I mean, young people today might not know that in those days, if you worked in a factory and you were a woman, no matter how skilled you were, you would get the wage of the unskilled workers. There were three levels, skilled, semi-skilled, unskilled. The unskilled were the unskilled men and all the women. The demand for equal pay for work of equal value meant women being recognized as skilled and semi-skilled, which meant they would get more money. Now, uh, the men fought for that. And there's a real material reason for this, and a huge advantage if you fight in this way, i.e., 
First of all, you eliminate women as cheap labor competing with men. Imagine an uns- a woman comes in, she's skilled, but she can be paid the wages of an unskilled worker. You eliminate that and you raise women to the same level as um, as men, but you also achieve workers' unity in the factory. Without the workers' unity, the men can't achieve the wage increases that they wanted. It just flows from the class struggle, the necessity. You know, we can ignore the individual. Some of those individual workers were pro- would have been probably sexist or whatever, but as a group, as a class, it was to their advantage. This came out clearly in the Russian Revolution and would not have been achieved without that. But they went beyond these questions. Um, Childcare facilities were enormously enhanced. For instance, creches at the workplace where women could have the child near, near the workplace. Um, and um, uh, such things, for instance, a woman didn't have to take the surname of the husband. So this is something which these days is discussed. They did that back then. Um, and aside, apart from women, they also decriminalized homosexuality, which is an enormously ahead of its time compared to many other um, countries. Can I jump but in it- there, Fred, just quickly, because even though this is slightly off topic, um, I think it's important to say some people argue, and I've seen argued, that the decriminalization of homosexuality was just a consequence of the old Tsarist penal code being done away with wholesale and the Bolsheviks didn't consciously decriminalize homosexuality. Uh, is that true? No, that's false because there were debates. Um, we've even published um, on Marxist.com a document which um, was written by uh, a Russian doctor on uh, on on all of these questions. And it, it was abundantly clear they discussed it and they decided that it was not a crime was not a criminal offense to be homosexual um i don't want to open the debate here i'm, I'm because it, what they actually thought etc etc and and what uh, is a different subject but they did discuss it i've seen that oh they forgot they yeah. just forgot to they accidentally decriminalized they accidentally left it out no they discussed it there were debates mm. and they consciously decided that it was not a criminal offense um but going back to the um the question of the, the conquest for women there was also the attempt to socialize uh, housework, right? The position of the communists wasn't wasn't um, how many how many times does the husband sweep the floor and how many times does the wife sweep the floor. It was how can we socialize these tasks and eliminate them actually as burdens within the family? And they attempted they attempted such things as communal kitchens, uh, public restaurants, laundries, i.e., services where you could unload a lot of the, the, the labor that's, uh, that was burdened on the woman um, within the family in, in a social way. They, they attempted all of that um, in the early days. Also, child care um, was enormously, um, it was enhanced. They, 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 they introduced child care centers, etc. You could see they were beginning to implement the program of, um, uh, of the Marxists on this question, i.e., creating the material conditions which would allow for a genuine equality of women. It's not enough just to pass laws to say you're equal. You've also got to make sure they are getting the same wages. You've got to make sure that those childcare centers actually do exist. You've got to make sure that those those public restaurants exist and are good quality. Um, all of this, um, they, they go together because if you don't have the material backup, then all the, the, all the other stuff is just words, laws that can be passed by anybody, but not acted on. I just wanted to come back on this point you raise about the socialization of domestic drudgery, because I know that there are some strands of feminism that argue that domestic labor should be paid for. It should be treated like a job. But the policy of the Bolsheviks was rather different. Rather than treating housework, rearing children as something which should be paid, you know, paid labor, uh, they attempted to socialize these tasks. Ilva, I don't know whether you have any thoughts on this question and how we distinguish ourselves from those who argue for paid domestic labor as Marxists. Mm. Well, I think it's a complete misunderstanding of how capitalism works and also the role of the family. So uh, basically, um, the family as the bourgeois family unit is is an important institution under capitalism uh, to reproduce the working class. 
basically, as, as Fred also touched upon, uh, uh, in the, after the Russian Revolution and what the Bolshe Bolsheviks were trying to do. Uh, but under capitalism, uh, the capitalists are dependent on workers having children, taking care of themselves uh, and their children so that a new generation of workers will be available for the capitalists to exploit when the work, when their parents are no longer able to work. And either these things can be done by society at large or by the family or both. But basically, this force on women, uh, mainly, uh, as, as capitalism inherited the family unit of previous class societies where women were already doing this. And I think if you actually, uh, if you raise the demand for, uh, for pay for, uh, for housewives, what you actually do is cement, uh, the isolation of women in the family already because, uh, it is, um, uh, men and women's roles in the family and society at large that have created these, these gender roles that feminists talk about. The ideas about what is feminine and male, what men are good at, what women are good at. Um, this comes from the roles they've had under capitalism and before capitalism. And it's women's subordination to men in the family, their economic dependence that give men a power over women, which has led to domestic violence and this idea that men should control women. Not just this, it has a way, uh, has to do with the way women's oppression originated or the chauvinist ideas promoted by the capitalists, but it's one of the major reasons. So what you actually do, you make it harder, uh, for, for women to attain uh, equality and independence. And at the same time, it is also an, this idea that it's unpaid labor. It's not actually true. Workers' wages are actually, uh, they're, they're paid wages to be able to reproduce themselves. Right. So uh, in, in countries where you have um, a lot of women who may not uh, work outside the, outside the home, uh, men's wages are actually uh, also covering uh, that sort of need to, to have a, a family uh, yeah. and to s sustain that family. It's a household it's, wage, it's basically. Not, it's a household yeah, it's, wage. it's not unpaid, actually. Uh, it's part of the reproduction of the working class, but it's actually a reactionary demand. It doesn't help women to, to attain more freedom and more equality. Yes, absolutely. And um, I want to come back to this question of the material conditions and how they go together with the emancipation of women because i think that on the other side there's a sort of utopian perspective of revolutionary russia where the bolsheviks came to power snapped their fingers and suddenly all the social ills of class society were done away with overnight but i think that's clearly not the case and the book um explains the severe barriers the Bolsheviks faced in post-revolutionary Russia in trying to carry out these policies. Um, Fred, perhaps you can give a bit more detail on some of these limitations and how far they actually got. Well, we have to understand that in order to implement the reforms, I, to have enough childcare centres, to have the restaurants, to have the laundries, to have all these structures in place, you have to have material resources. You've got to finance it. You, 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 you've got to build these, these places. You've got to run them, etc. We must remember that the, the, the revolution inherited a country where 85% of the population were peasants. Most of them were illiterate peasants working on, on the land, working on the peasant communes, etc. And for example, I just can quote one example. You see, they inherited a disastrous situation. Um, four years of world war, then the civil war, the famines, etc., all the difficulties that came with it. There were huge numbers of orphans wandering the cities, sleeping in the stations, sleeping on the streets. Um, and this was a huge problem they had to deal with. How do you cater for these uh, children? How do you feed them? How do you clothe them? They just could not build enough structures to care for them. And there was, there, there was a debate, you know, so, so, some communists were of the opinion that um, um, adoption shouldn't be allowed. Now, there was a good reason for it. In a country of 85% peasantry, most of those children would be adopted by peasants. And the likelihood would be that the reasons they would do it is because they'd get free labor. But the problem, they had to retreat. 
for instance, this was an example of a material a limit. They had to retreat and allow the adoption of children because these children had to be fed. They had to be clothed. They had to be looked after. The only way was uh, adoption. And that was a retreat because of a material uh, limit. Um, but it wasn't the only one. Um, they, they, they retreated on... Um, uh, many of these, uh, you know, the, the, the laundries, the kitchen, they, they just, they could not be built, um, in sufficient numbers and sufficient quality to make it work. And therefore you retreat back to a more traditional, um, form. If you read Lenin and Trotsky, they are constantly highlighting the need to develop the productive forces, to develop the economy, to develop the means as a way of having the means to achieve the resources that would allow for this full equality to be implemented, you can't magically bring into existence huge productive forces. They have to be built up over years. You know, you, you don't build factories in a day. You've got to build the machines. The machines don't build themselves. You've got to have the skilled workers, the engineers, the science, all of that infrastructure that allows for that modern industrial development takes time and in the meantime you still got to feed the children you still got to look after them you've got to um, wash the clothes cook the food and because of the limits of the, mat the material limits you started to see um, a retreat on various fronts now i could outline some of some of them um this wasn't it didn't happen in one day but you could say Towards the middle end of the twenties, you could see this process is be this process beginning. And in the thirties, it was consolidated. For example, um, in the thirties, divorce was made more difficult, not, not easier as it had been done previously. Abortion was banned. Uh, this enormously progressive step, um, was banned and motherhood was promoted, even, even promoting, giving bonuses to women who had more than a certain number of children. Um, the family, the, the whole idea of the family was, was enhanced. And of course, the communal kitchens, laundries, all that went and it was back to cooking in the family. Um, which meant, of course, reestablishing the old family, um, that the Bolsheviks had attempted to abolish. Um, and that was because of the material um, limits. And of course, the same material limits explains the rise of the bureaucracy in Stalinism itself. So Stalinism and the regression on these reforms marched together. And the conservatism on the question of the family also reflects the conservatism of the rising bureaucracy that eventually was consolidated. Mm. And we will talk about the degeneration of the Russian Revolution and what it meant for Russian women, and I would say women throughout the world, actually, uh, in a moment. But just to return to Ilva, and we touched mm. on this perhaps a number of times already, but I think we should just be crystal clear about precisely what separates a Marxist approach to women's oppression from other strands of thoughts that claim to stand for the interests of women from feminism, from intersectionality, other forms of identity mm. politics. What is it that distinguishes the Marxist view from these other um, trends? Well, look, we say that uh, women's oppression is is rooted in class society. It it rose together with class society and private property. It's rooted in the current class society capitalism. But but feminists uh, and and all strands of identity politics, they see oppression as independent to one degree or another from from capitalism, and they are all idealists. And I know that you've you've talked about this in the podcast when when talking about science and the uh, James Webb Telescope, the the difference between idealist and materialist philosophy. But what this means when it comes to to the struggle against oppression, they think that. Ideas are fundamental. Culture, norms, religion, all of this is what shapes society. And basically, we have oppression because we simply have these oppressive ideas. They never explain where it comes from. But but for them, we have to change the ideas, convince everyone that these are bad ideas. And when we have, that will change society. Oppression will no longer exist if they believe that we can get to that point because they, 
they tend to be very pessimistic. But, but we understand that these ideas do not come from nowhere. They're the result of class society, the way oppression is rooted in it. And as long as we have capitalism, we'll ha we will have these, uh, these prejudice, these racist, sexist, homophobic ideas and so on. Um, but because they don't see oppression as rooted in capitalism, uh, they think that the ones upholding oppression is not the capitalists as a class, but the ones who don't suffer from women's oppression. So basically men as a group uphold women's oppression and they benefit off of it. Uh, and only women have this interest of fighting against uh, women's oppression. And the struggle is not a struggle against the capitalists, but against men. Uh, and they men actually stand to lose from that struggle. Uh, and all women stand to gain from it, which opens the door to class collaboration. And we say you cannot have a common struggle again, uh, amongst all women against women's oppression because bourgeois women, even if oppressed as women, they will be against all reforms for working women that lowers their profits. They fear mass struggle that threatens the capitalist system. And they're obviously against abolishing capitalism. But, but what this means is that identity politics feminism they're arguing this exact same thing as the capitalists they actually help the capitalists to convince workers that they benefit off of oppression and that they should perhaps also join hands with those parts of the ruling class that belong to their oppressed group so it, it's actually the ex uh, exact opposite of of marxism um and they're very reactionary poisonous ideas i would say that help to divide the movement in precisely the way the ruling class wants. Um, and it's also very, because of its idealism, it, it also um, plants this idea that we can get rid of oppression without getting rid of uh, capitalism, that all you need is more representation, more female politicians, having politicians calling themselves feminists, claiming in words to to want to fight uh, oppression. Uh, without actually doing anything about it or using it to go uh, on an offensive against the whole working class. So it's, it's, it's a useful tool in the hands of, uh, of the ruling class, actually, uh, identity politics and, and feminism. Mm. Yeah, I really want to pick up on that idea that you presented of identity politics being pessimistic. It's a profoundly fatalistic view that hatred of men towards women is just something innate to men if that's true then there's no way you can really ever do away with oppression people are just born into the world hating people who are different then there's not an awful lot you can do whereas obviously if you see these ideas as serving some kind of purpose under class society if there was a time before the oppression of women which marxists also argue and engels makes this point Women haven't always been oppressed by men. It was a product of class society, as you said, of the accumulation of surplus and, 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 and this sort of thing. Then it's possible to imagine a time without the oppression of women because it has happened before. Um, and I also want to highlight an example which stuck out to me of the divisive aspects of identity politics in the struggle for women's liberation. Specifically, a couple of years ago, there was an enormous historic 8th of March strike in spain where the organizers said this was a this is a women's strike it's a women's only strike and men should not take part in effect they were asking men to scab en masse and i remember that created a bit of a division even within that movement because there were some people saying wait a minute wait a minute are we actually going to ask half the population in the context of a national strike not to take part doesn't that massively undermine the strike and its objectives um, that really stood out to me as a concrete example of the ultimate conclusion of these ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that we've seen in, in Sweden several times, actually, is that when uh, workers in male-dominated sectors go on strike, uh, some feminists have said that, look, these workers are already so well-paid, they're privileged, and it's women workers who deserve better pay. Uh, ignoring first of all that in those sectors where, where male uh, workers dominate, you will also have female workers. But also, second of all, I mean, it, it, this is something that, that even a child would understand that if male workers would not go on strike, 
that does not automatically raise the wages of female workers and the ones who actually benefit of a men not uh, demanding uh, a higher pay are obviously the capitalists that the male workers work for. Uh, so it's, it's not in the interest of female workers for men to not uh, demand higher wages. And actually, it's the opposite that is true. Female workers are obviously inspired uh, to, to struggle as well when, when male workers go on strike and, and vice versa. So, but this, this idea, uh, you see all the time, like you said, this idea that only an oppressed group, uh, are the only ones who benefit off of struggling against it. And then it's used to, again, like the capitalists, to pit different, uh, sectors of the working class against each other. And it completely weakens the movement. But in most cases, I would say, workers see through this when they're actually going out on strike and struggling uh they won't follow that example that the, the identity politics want wants them to uh and in spain a lot of a lot of men did join in uh in the protests mm-hmm. i should have said actually we're very privileged to have ilva on she's our first international guest uh, thank you very much ilva how are things in mm. stockholm well, it's uh, it's very cold at the moment, uh, which usually is the case here in Sweden. Mm-hmm. So I hear. Um, going to be the first of many. We're going to have a series of guests from across the international Marxist tendency uh, on the podcast in coming weeks. Obviously, we're part of an international. Without internationalism, the Marxists are nothing. So it's a very important that we get voices from all over our organization. Fred, um you started to talk about the degeneration of the Russian Revolution and the rise of Stalinism and how that went hand in hand with the restoration of chauvinist ideas, the undoing of the advances that were made on the women's question. Um, how did it all end up um, from you know, how, how did the degeneration impact women in Russia in the first place? And ultimately, how did this lead to the situation in Russia today after the collapse of the USSR? Well, first you have to clarify the conditions in which the the revolution took place. It, you know, Russia, uh, the, the, the Tsarist Empire, was, uh, economically speaking, very underdeveloped, had pockets of advanced industry. But well, as I said before, when you have an 85% of the population who are peasants, um, there's a culture that goes with that too. I, I can just give you just 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 one little example. Um, when a man fathered a child and the law came after him to pay the alimony, and by the way, there was a debate on this. For instance, Kollontai regards alimony as a bourgeois concept, and she was against getting men to pay. But in the conditions of Russia, that was absurd and utopian. But when they went after them, uh. If a young man who belonged to a peasant commune, for example, um, was asked to pay, where was he going to get the money from? He worked on a peasant commune and didn't have an income. It was the commune that had to pay. That created resentment on the, on the question of, you know, oh, this easy divorce and, and all of those ideas. There was, there was actually a material base to the conservatism that eventually reemerged. Um, the, the 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 a lot of the prejudices of the previous uh, period of the Tsarist period were still present in large parts of the uh, Soviet Union, and they very easily reemerged, especially when the revolution was isolated. You see, the Bolsheviks and the advanced workers were looking to the workers of Germany and other countries to carry out a socialist revolution and thereby provide the technique, the technology, the machines, the know-how that would have allowed for a much faster development of the Soviet Union. When that revolution failed, that's a separate discussion why it failed, but once that failed and several others, and, and the Soviet Union was isolated, then it had to try and move forward on the limited economic base that it had, the limited resources that it had. That's what forced a retreat. Um, on many fronts, and also allowed for the emergence of a conservative bureaucracy, which had within it many of the old uh, prejudices. Um, so what what happened was that, as I said, you know, the, the, you, you 
the, the idea of social care for children, not having the resources, then they had to be pushed back into the family. Not having the resources for the socialization of housework, they had to be pushed back into the family. Therefore, the traditional family started to come back as a model. And especially, uh, you could say, in the 1930s, um, that idea was pushed heavily um, because they needed to count on it. Now, in terms of um, uh, the losses, well, the women lost the right to an abortion, which was uh, the one one key element of um, women's rights to control their body and to control how many and when and if to have uh, children. That was removed. Um, and, of course, because the, the double burden basically was, was maintained and came back, um, on top of working, you had this um, situation in, in the... Um, in the family and the motherhood and all those ideas were promoted. So women lost out a lot. However, there's a paradox here. As the economy did begin to develop on the basis of the planned economy and the five-year plans, the Soviet Union did start to develop an industrial base and became quite an advanced country over a period of decades. And with it, came the material resources to allow certain positive developments. It would be wrong to say a revolution good, Stalinism bad, uh, full stop. No, the revolution showed what was possible uh, and far more than the Stalinists were able to do later. But the planned economy, in spite of all the limitations of, 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 of the situation, created the resources whereby, for instance, you start to see uh, greater and greater childcare that did emerge in, in the, in the Soviet Union. Much greater access to education for women. For instance, if you look at the figures, the number of female doctors, engineers, scientists, it was, it was well ahead of many, many uh, other countries. But because you had the rise of a bureaucracy and a privileged bureaucracy at the top, which needed to control and uh, society, maintain stability, and also not lose control to the working class, i.e. to restore the genuine workers' democracy of the revolution, the conservative ideas on the family came in very useful in terms of an instrument, for instance, for imposing authority um, from above. So you had a kind of double, uh, the book with John Roberts goes into this. You have, on the one hand, a regression, uh, which I outlined, but also because of the development of the economy, thanks to the planned economy, you also had a lot of positive developments, uh, such you know, such as the, the benefits, actual material benefits that women were able to um, uh, to benefit. There, there were two processes going on. Um, in the sense, there was still a conflict between the benefits of the planned economy and the conservative nature of the bureaucracy that had emerged as a privileged elite. Thank you, Fred. I think it's very useful to outline the things that were accomplished even in a deformed worker state on the basis of a planned economy and how that puts many capitalist countries to shame even today. Um, Ilva, I think mm. that it's important for our listeners to outline what practically a class-based struggle against the oppression of women looks like. Um, what do you think a working class led and unambiguously class based struggle for for example um defense of abortion rights today obviously there have been a series of new attacks on the right to abortion there was the um, repealing of roe v wade in the u.s last year what would a working class counteroffensive look like and how would it be different from what the, the liberal and feminists and bourgeois feminists are proposing? We need to struggle for, for many different demands. And obviously that will be different in, in different countries, exactly what you raise. But you need a lot of uh, demands that actually really concretely uh, improves the lives uh, of women. And many of them will be uh, the kind of, uh, uh, the kind of, um, policies that were introduced by the Bolsheviks after the Russian Revolution. Um, but what you also need is, uh, in all of these struggles that we're seeing uh, 
throughout the world that we've seen in the last few years uh, is is um it's very much uh, it's not just a question of what reforms you're raising what demands you're raising uh, but also the methods uh, that yeah, you talked about the methods that we have are, are very different from from the methods proposed by by identity politics. Uh, and first of all, the the most important difference is uh, class independence. No collaboration with uh, any part of the bourgeoisie. Uh, no illusions in liberal uh, politicians uh, in in the US. No illusions in in the in the Democrats, uh, or that you can sort of go the legal way having uh, uh the courts solve this question but you need uh mass struggle uh on the streets uh, of the working class and the whole working class because that is what's going to bring power to these movements uh, if it's not just uh, a minority of the working class joining in that struggle but but the whole working class but you also i think um uh, a weakness that we've seen in many of these protests over the last few years, uh, it's that, uh, most of them have really been mainly street demos. They've been very, very, uh, radical. If you take Black Lives Matter, for example, massive movement, very radical, or the movements in, in Mexico against femicides, very radical. But we've mainly seen street demonstrations and the way to escalate that struggle would have been uh, on the one hand you need more organization of the movement itself but you also need the working class to to join in the struggle as a class you need strikes because sometimes street demonstrations are enough to force concessions from the ruling class. But often you need the uh, economic power that the working class has, the fact that workers can go on strike, uh, stop production, and with that they stop the things that, that the, the capitalists are dependent on, the production for profits. Um, and I think the reason why this hasn't happened, uh, there are two reasons for that. On the one hand, that the leaders of many of these movements are liberals or semi left wing, but who are into identity politics. So they, they don't want class struggle or they think it's not necessary. But second, I would say also it's because of the reformism of the labor movement. Most trade union leaders and leaders of, of labor parties of all countries are against militant class struggle. They don't want to abolish capitalism. They don't want the struggle to hurt the capitalists. They're in favor of class collaboration and negotiations. So that they don't organize strikes in solidarity. Uh, and, and parties of the labor movement don't try and lead the movement to transform it into a struggle towards ending capitalism, which is also ultimately what you need, not just a struggle for for limited demands uh, that can be taken away any day, uh, which is especially the case now under the crisis of capitalism. Even if you actually force a concession from the bourgeoisie, if you don't have that threat of, of a class struggle or even a revolution, then they're going to take those reforms away. Also, I would say that a lot of these things, I mean, the right to abortion and the struggle for the right to abortion, that is a very concrete demand. But many of the movements that we've seen, they, they don't really focus on a single uh, clear demand, but it's more a kind of general protest against uh, whole oppression, against racism and police violence in general, or against violence against women in general. And this is obviously something that you can't reform away, uh, but you need to uproot the system. You need to end capitalism uh, and therefore you need a socialist revolution. Uh, so you need to tie uh, the, the struggle for concrete reforms um, with the struggle for to end capitalism. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, Fred, the collapse of the USSR. You were going to talk about that in a bit more detail. Well, yes. Um, and before going on to that, um, there were different phases in the bureaucratization of the Soviet Union, um, which were also linked to the development of the productive forces, because, um, as I said earlier on, once the economy developed, 
the child care, which the Bolsheviks could not provide for in the early 20s because of the limited resources, became quite widespread, uh, which was enormously beneficial for women in the, in the Soviet Union, the nurseries, um, the health care, uh, even women having their own pension. Uh, it seems like a little detail, but it's not a detail. If a woman's going to be genuinely free for a whole life, she's got to be genuinely economically independent from the men, which, which then, of course, would create a situation where people can relate to each other genuinely, not because they're coerced or they're forced or because of the moralism of society, but because they genuinely want to be together because there are no economic constraints. But you see, um, in, in the 50s, for example, abortion was, again, uh, legalized. Um, in Russia, even under the bureaucracy after the, after the death of Stalin. Um, uh, so, uh, homosexuality was criminalized and then after decades, they softened on that as well. But, um, the, the question is this, um, this is a separate discussion, obviously. The control over the economy and society by a bureaucracy with no workers control, no workers democracy, allowed for corruption to reach unprecedented levels. And the planning itself became uh, weakened, in effect, by the bureaucratic control, the inefficiencies, etc. And eventually, this created the conditions for the collapse of the Soviet Union when the economy came to a complete halt. And what we see is from within the bureaucracy itself, a bourgeois element emerges which is something that Trotsky had predicted in the revolution betrayed in 1936. When he made those predictions, he was attacked by the, by the communist parties. How dare he could even consider something? Well, history has proven him completely right. Where did the capitalist class come from? I'm sure Putin, as a young man, had a communist party card in his pocket. Yeltsin was an official a leader of the communist party. Gorbachev, all of these people, all of them participated in the restoration of capitalism um, in uh, in Russia. Now, look, look at what comes with it. The rehabilitation of the Orthodox Church, um, the promotion of the family on an even greater degree than under, under Stalinism. Um, homophobia is ever-present in, um, in, uh, in Russia. Although it's not illegal, there's a lot of discrimination against homosexuality. And LGBT activists, for instance, have been arrested for, um, for promoting, um, you know, campaigns for, for their right. Um, so the, the restoration of, uh, uh, capitalism is reflected also in the family. And in fact, the family is kind of, is a tool within the process. It, it's, it's present within the, the, the Stalinist degeneration. You can see that in the conservative, uh, retreats. On, on family law in many, in many cases. But then it, that develops even further, um, with, um, with capitalist restoration, where we have the situation that we have today. Now, the book is really a, a long historical view of the process of one, the role of women in the revolution in 1917, the, 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 the immensely progressive reforms achieved by the revolution, the reasons for the regression, the retreat in the late 20s and 30s under, under Stalinism, and what happened to the family um, in that situation, and how it was used in the process of the re-establishing re, re, um, re of capitalism um, in, uh, in Russia. And, and as Putin and, and, the, and the oligarchs of Russia have uh, used it to this day, i.e. The, using the family as an instrument of uh, consolidating class rule and authority that goes with it. Um, what we have to do is understand why all this happened. You know, it's not, it's not just a question of listing a, a number of historical events and facts, but understanding the reasons for this. And we can go back to the early days of the revolution and get inspiration from what the Bolsheviks attempted to do incredibly advanced legislation um, which was introduced but also understand why that's not possible in one country it all comes down in the end 
to the fact that socialism in one country is not possible, no matter how developed an economy is. There are limits which will lead to bureaucracy, which will lead to an elite, which will lead to privilege, the desire to pass on the privilege. The problem with the bureaucrats was they were not satisfied with being privileged bureaucrats. They actually wanted to, this is, Trotsky makes this point, the revolution betrayed, to pass on that privilege as property to their offspring. And that means you, you rebuild the same family that, um, served the bourgeoisie and the capitalist class and all class societies going back thousands of years. It served them very well in the oppression of women in, in a class society. And the, uh, the new system that was built, the, 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 the capitalist system in Russia today has gone back to that. But we have in that brief window, an idea of what would be possible, the genuine equality between men and women, the genuine freedom in sexual relations between men, women, and not just men, women, you know, lesbians, gays, trans people, all forms of sexual expression would be free on the basis of the abolition of private property, the plan, and a planned economy, and no privileged class. The Bolshevik Revolution gave us a glimpse of what was possible. They started to try and implement that. What could not continue on that road because of the material limits, because of the defeat of one revolution after another. Today, capitalism, as capitalism has developed productive forces which were unimaginable in the past. We now have the material resources whereby a socialist transformation on a global scale would really bring into being the conditions where women would be com completely free from all the burdens of the past. And the, the, to men, the point is, it's good for men to, you know, it, to live in a genuinely free society where not only are women not oppressed, but men are not oppressed as workers by the ruling class and the capitalist class. And there would be a genuine free relation between humans that we've never seen under class society. Um, and now we have the material conditions for that. The problem is, of course, those material resources are in the hands of a capitalist class that uses them not for progress, but for reaction. Our task as, as Marxists is to fight to overthrow this system uh, we can't decide how the future generations will live, but we can fight to create the conditions, the material conditions, which would allow them finally to decide freely how to relate to each other. That's what I would say. Mm. Here, here. And I just want to echo the point that this book, Women, Family and the Russian Revolution, is a really valuable tool for understanding the processes that Fred just outlined. It is full of very inspirational stories about the conquests of the Bolshevik Revolution and really valuable lessons about the degeneration that occurred um, under Stalinism. And um, just want to remind everyone once more that it's available to pre-order right now. I'll put a link in the description, but the website is well-read. That's w-e-l-l-r-e-d-books.com. It's true that we can't tell future generations how they should live. We can't determine the sexual relations or the social relations of future generations under a socialist and communist society. But just for fun, Ilva, assuming mm. there's a revolution in Sweden tomorrow or Britain tomorrow or any other country tomorrow, the capitalists are overthrown, capitalism is expropriated and abolished. And we are the new commissariat. We have to draw up a list of reforms and policies to advance the revolution. What would be our policy with regards women? What kinds of measures would a socialist regime put in place today, bearing in mind the advancements of the productive forces that Fred has outlined? Mm. Well, I think basically we would uh, we would carry on what the Bolsheviks started in the first years after the Russian Revolution. We would create not just full equality between the sexes, uh, formal uh, equality, but also full economic equality. Uh, and 
you would socialize again, like the Bolsheviks tried to start. You would socialize all the chores that are now the responsibility of the family. Um, not prohibiting anyone who wants to cook or clean from doing so, but providing all of it. Uh, and, and that way we would move towards a more collective, uh, way of life that, that would lay the basis for the withering way of the family as an institution. And, and basically, you would um you would end all of the things that now uh pit different sectors of the working class against each other this this competition of uh between uh workers for jobs housing and so on i mean we we would provide all of that uh with a nationalized planned uh, economy uh, and and all of that would mean that you would start to end uh, you would start to free women from their subordination uh, to men, give them genuine uh, equality. Uh, and that in turn would lead to the withering way of, of sexism, prejudice of all kinds, uh, sexual harassment and so on. And, and just one point there. I think there are some people who, uh, they might agree on certain things uh, with this, but, but again, like, like we talked about earlier, they're very, pessimistic like can we really be sure that these measures um real economic equality between the sexes uh replacing the family as an institution with with the you know socializing all of these chores will that really mean that uh you will ha see uh see all of these um prejudice disappear sexism disappear and so on but i would say uh you can look at the the russian revolution of course but i i would say also you could look at sweden um so the reason i would say that sweden has been called the most equal country in the world under capitalism is because of the reforms that were put in place during the post-war period, uh, the, the welfare, the expansion of welfare, the public sector, which enabled women to enter into the workforce. And this, and this led to a new generation, uh, growing up with both parents working, uh, and it transformed the way those generations thought about men and women and their relationships in comparison to those who had grown up with their mothers staying at home. And this is under capitalism, very, very limited amounts of reforms. Just imagine then the difference that a socialist uh, society would mean, where it's not just reforms, but all the things that stand in the way of women's liberation are removed, where you don't have a ruling class that tries to divide the working class, where you actually have real equality. Of course, that's going to transform our culture, our relationships and our way of life. Fantastic. Can I just add one little detail? Of course you can. Um, Homo sapiens has been around, according to the latest research, for about 300,000 years. Um, agriculture came in about 10, 12,000 years ago. Um, in the period between the agricultural revolution and the emergence of historically known societies, the patriarchal family came into being. But now that means something like, you know, 95% of the time that Homo sapiens has been on this planet, we did not live in class societies. We lived as hunter-gatherers, basically. All the studies I've read, and some of them even by not, not exactly left-wing people, but all kinds of anthropologists uh, and others, they all agree that there's one characteristic which hunter-gatherer societies express, and that is an extreme egalitarianism. There is genuine respect between the sexes and gen gen genuine equality. Um, as Marxists, we would argue that is because there was no private property. There was no ownership of any means of production. Now, it was obviously on a much less developed plane. But what it means is that we evolved as animals for thousands, tens of thousands of years on an egalitarian basis. If you want to talk about the true nature of human beings, that is it. Class society enormously distorts it. Property distorts it. The desire to pass on property, etc., etc. Don't open that discussion. But what it means is that we've reached a point where we could go back, in a certain sense, 
to an egalitarian society without the private property of the means of production. And that would be the material base upon which the original egalitarianism would reemerge, but on a much higher level. So there is, there is a, a, a close connection between the struggle to abolish private property and the genuine equality between humans. Um, this is something we need to develop and fight for. It's not, it's not an academic discussion. It's part of our struggle to change society. Well, thank you very much, Fred. And this question of anthropology, the emergence of the family, the oppression of women as a historical phenomenon, we may have to get you back on the podcast at a future date to talk about this in more detail. Uh, Ilva, Fred, I think that was an excellent discussion. Thank you so much for joining us both for our first ever three-way IMR podcast. I think it went quite well, I have to say. And I hope you all agree, and I hope you all have a revolutionary international working Women's Day. One more time, Ilva and Fred, thank you very much. That was International Marxist Radio. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again same time next week for more Marxist news, theory, and analysis. And if you've been inspired by what you've heard today, get in touch via our website, marxist.com, and find out more about how you can join the international Marxist tendency and fight for revolution where you are.